Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. What I love about Shopify is basically how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. I know we use Shopify here at Betches. And honestly, anyone with any kind of business could really benefit from Shopify. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash betches, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash betches now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash betches. Just a reminder that Diet Starts Tomorrow is a podcast for entertainment purposes only. It is not a medical podcast and does not constitute medical advice. Always seek the advice of a physician or a health professional. Betches Media presents Diet Starts Tomorrow. I stand behind my decision to avoid salad and other disgusting things. With hosts Remy Casimir. I'll have what she's having. And Emily Lubin. Remember, shoot like you have a secret. We're here to amuse your boosh. Hello and welcome to Diet Starts Tomorrow. I'm Emily. And I'm Remy. And today's topic was inspired by a Dear DST that we read not too long ago, you might remember, about egg donation. So we realized we know very little about egg donation and egg freezing for that matter. And we decided to invite two very knowledgeable women on the podcast today to answer our questions and your questions. So we are joined by the co-founder and CEO of CoFertility, Lauren Mackler, as well as reproductive endocrinologist, Dr. Mira Shaw. Welcome, you guys. Thank you. We're so excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And you guys actually reached out after that episode in response to, it was specifically a question about BMI and egg freezing. And we're going to get mm -hmm. to that because we got a lot of questions about that after that episode. And, um, and to be honest, I was a little confused too, but we'll get into that. But to start off, I'm wondering... Lauren, you're um, the CEO and co-founder of CoFertility. Could you tell me a little bit about what CoFertility is and what its mission is? Yeah, absolutely. So CoFertility is a company that we started after seeing different pain points in the fertility space. Um, we know that egg freezing is this incredible science that exists that so many people should be able to take advantage of if that's something they want to do but it is so cost prohibitive that most can't, right? We often say like the best time to freeze your eggs is when you can least afford it. And so we wanted to find Ooh. ways to make egg freezing more affordable for women. And then at the same time, we also knew that egg donation is something that um, just needed updating, right? I think so many problems in egg donation are rooted in the idea of cash compensation. It's something that often makes women who would be interested in donating their eggs um, off put in a way, right? This idea that they are, you know, selling their body in a way. Um, it puts mm -hmm. off intended parents because they feel weird about exchanging cash for the genetics of their future child. But also recent studies show that it's most off-putting, honestly, to the donor-conceived child that comes out of it. And so we felt that we could bring these two things together to address both problems. So co-fertility gives, we have two programs actually on our egg freezing side. One is called Split, one is called Keep. Our Split program gives women the opportunity to freeze their eggs for free and to store them for up to 10 years free. When they Wild. donate half of the eggs retrieved to intended parents that can't otherwise conceive. So that could be hopeful gay dads, people who struggle with infertility, cancer survivors, and more. There's a lot of reasons someone might need an egg donor. 
Um, and then for people who maybe aren't interested in egg donation, because we know it's not for everybody and that's like totally okay, or who don't qualify for egg donation, which is something we can talk about, we have our keep program. And that's a self-pay program where they keep 100% of the eggs for themselves, but through partnerships that Cofertility has with different clinics, with different um, storage providers, medication providers, and more, we're able to lower the financial burden for our members. And so happy to talk details on that front, but since our company um, started just almost a year ago at this point, we've been able to really address both problems, right? Make egg freezing more accessible and give intended parents better options as they seek to grow their family. Wow, what a great idea. I This really hits very close to home for me at least because people tell me all the time, I mean, I'm 33 and I was at a wedding not too long ago and somebody came up to me all drunk, like, you better freeze your eggs before 35. <laughs> like people are Everybody. always <laughs> saying yeah. it. And then, um, and I actually looked up a rough estimate of how much it would cost. And I thought, I can't afford that. There's right. no universe in which I could do that. You can with us. That's right? incredible. That's, that, right. So, and I, I think like something we talk about all the time and Mira, I'm sure we'll have a lot to add about this is that I think egg freezing used to be this thing that we saw as like, a last ditch effort if you were single and, you know, didn't have a plan for your future. And it was sort of like, oh, better avoid being a spinster and, and freeze my eggs. Right. And it's just not that anymore. Right. I think that people are seeing it as a really empowering thing to do and mm-hmm. as something that like just gives them more options later in life. And so and the more, more time that we can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like make it more accessible and something that more people are able to do and not just reserve for people who like work at big tech companies, the better. Yeah. I've always felt slighted by the fact that sperm can make a baby until like the person making the sperm is like 90 years old. Like as long <laughs> as sperm is still produced, but for, you know, people who have eggs, it's like they, they always say like your clock is ticking. And I feel with egg freezing and storage, it seems to buy a good amount of time. How much time, uh, Dr. Mira, does it buy? Like how long can you freeze your eggs for? So the good news is that it doesn't matter how long your eggs are stored for. It could be months or years or decades, but the eggs Mm -hmm. can survive that freezing thought process over a long span of time. So I think the ability to store this until a woman's ready with the right person, or maybe, you know, they pursue family planning on their own as a single woman with donor sperm. There's a lot of different ways now that we support family planning. But, you know, the, the whole point of this is that do it on your own on your own timeline that works for best for you. I certainly do counsel women a lot that they don't want to wait forever, mainly for two reasons. One, that egg freezing is not a guarantee. Don't rely on that as being your only source of having children, because if it doesn't mm-hmm. work, then you're devastated. So I'm really honest about that with my patients. Um, the second mm-hmm. thing is that we know that there are risks in carrying a pregnancy when you're over 35, and especially over 40. We just know that things creep up on you, like hypertension, diabetes, other kind of comorbidities. So we know that carrying a pregnancy when you're older can lead to higher risk pregnancies and potentially higher risk, you know, outcomes as well. So I think it's just about having that honest conversation. But to your question, Remy, I think you can, you can really freeze your eggs for as long, however long you wish for until the time's right for you. I've, I've wondered how many eggs you recommend freezing at a time? Like, is it by the dozen? Like, what are we talking about? Because I know multiple rounds is usually the, the way that women go. So is there a mm-hmm. number of eggs that gives you the best chance? Good question. Well, it really depends on your age, because the younger you are, the better your egg quality. So when you're younger, you don't have to freeze as many eggs to achieve an outcome of having a successful live birth. When you're older, you may have to freeze double or triple the number of eggs to achieve the same results. So it really mm-hmm. comes down to we have a, a lot of data now because there's been so many babies conceived through frozen eggs, frozen embryos. We have data now to create these models. So we can tell women based on your age, based on the number of eggs you froze, this is your probability of having a live birth. So for example, let's take a 35 year old woman who freezes 10 eggs. I'll tell her that she has a 70% chance of having at least one live birth. Now, this is where I say to women, 70% may sound great to you, or it may sound like it's not enough. And that's really just something that's personal 
to that woman, depending on her risk tolerance. So for some women, they may feel like, okay, well, I never may need to use these eggs. I'm happy I just did this. I have an immense amount of peace of mind, which is always the experience that I've had with patients who do this, whether or not they come back to use their eggs or not, there's just an overwhelming sense of peace of mind. So I think that's really important. Um, but certainly in terms of the number of eggs, if a, if a question I'll often ask patients is how many kids do you want to have? And if they say, hey, I really want a large family, then 10 eggs is not going to be enough. They may want to do a second or third or fourth cycle. And we also know that the number of eggs you freeze per cycle really depends on your ovarian reserve. I'm happy to go into that a little bit more in depth later, but it really, every woman's different. And that's not something that you have any control over. It's kind of predetermined in your own genetic DNA, how many eggs you're born with and how quickly you lose them over time. When we go through menopause, we sort of run out of eggs. We no longer have any, but well before menopause, the quality of our eggs are really declining. So it's really about doing this at the right time. And I think when you're under 35, you're more likely to have a successful outcome. If you're over 35, you can still do it, but you might need to do more cycles to get a good result. And we're saying women a lot, but I, I was wondering, can trans men or non-binary people who are on testosterone donate eggs as well? Or can they freeze eggs as well? Absolutely. And thank you for clarifying that. Thank you. I, I should really say individuals with ovaries, because really anyone who has an ovary is a candidate for egg freezing. And I have okay, cool. cared for many trans individuals over the past, especially before they were going to undergo their transition with starting mm. testosterone. We know that testosterone will kind of shut down their menstrual cycles and their whole reproductive right. axis of hormones, right. right? Yeah. And they don't want to have to come off of testosterone later to have a family. So typically mm -hmm. I'll try to see them before that transition begins. They can freeze their eggs and then start their hormone therapy and then really be able to build a family later on in life when they're ready. Cool. Yeah. And I, I was wondering too, because, you know, sperm donation, I think is a thing that's been talked about way more than egg donation, I think because of the ease at which you can donate sperm and the amount yeah. at which you can donate sperm before we get into the process of, you know, actually what goes into donating eggs or what goes into freezing eggs. Um, is it the same with anonymity? If you're donating, like, are there different options for donors and all that yeah. stuff? So it really depends on the organization that you work with to donate, whether it's mm -hmm. egg donation or sperm donation. Um, at co-fertility, we all, like, I literally like feel allergic to the word anonymous because it okay. is such bullshit. Like it just is right. Like this idea, 23andMe exists. And so the idea that like, even if you as a donor never take a 23andMe test, but your like great uncle does right. Someday oh, yeah. like you could be found. Right. And yeah. so I think these organizations that are out there being like, Oh, donate your eggs or your sperm anonymously, like it's just a lie, right? Like it's it's false to the donor and to the parents that are receiving on the receiving side, right? So we're really upfront about that with, with our members on both sides. And we offer two options. One is called disclosed. One is called undisclosed. Disclosed is where they have one another's contact information and they even have the opportunity to meet ahead of time. We call it a match meeting. And... It's interesting because I think like so much fear around donation comes from this idea that you might be walking down the street one day and see someone that looks like you and like think that's your offspring, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the fear. And a disclosed donation really helps with that, right? Not only could you meet the intended parents, but you can have it set up in a legal agreement with the intended parents that like you get a photo once a year or you have the opportunity to connect down the line if you want to or maybe you share when you have a child someday so that there's like a mutual understanding there. Um, the match meetings that we have have like truly been probably like the, the highlight of my entire career when I get to sit in on one of those. Oh. Like it is so incredible to like see parents connect with the person who's going to donate their genetics and to see the things they have in common and the hopes that they have for their future. It's like really incredible and it can be a beautiful thing. It doesn't have to be so transactional. Mm -hmm. um, we also offer what we call disclosed donations, which are like very purposely not called anonymous. But the idea is that like maybe for cultural reasons or maybe for emotional reasons, it doesn't feel right to share contact information at the beginning of this phase. Or maybe they don't want to meet on Zoom, but instead they write one another a letter or something like that. As long as both parties are aware that they could be contacted someday and that, you know, 
genetic testing makes it possible for them to find one another. Like we, of course, want to support what feels right for people. So um, I will say like a vast majority of our matches are disclosed and Mm -hmm. they do get to know one another, um, but it doesn't have to be the case. So um, unfortunately, there are a lot of companies out there that still go this anonymous route and promote that. And I can't do anything about it, but I can make sure that like we're really upfront and honest about the realities of that with co-fertility. That's a really, really, yeah. I mean, that, that makes so much sense. And, um, I actually personally know people that that's happened to, I think 23andMe has made it so, so common for people to, whether they want to or not be connected to their birth parents. Um, And so just My acknowledging found out she's one of 11 siblings because oh this gosh. guy donated that many times yeah. in one year wow. and they're all the same well, age. I think like 20 plus years ago, no one had envisioned 23 and me, right? Yeah. Like yeah. they, they didn't think like, oh, it's going to be possible to find all of these other genetic half siblings someday. So we might as well make as much money off this one donor we possibly can. Right. And I don't fault the people in the fertility space back then because that they did what they thought was best and they did as well as they could. But now that we know how traumatic that can be and how hard that can be for everyone involved, we just need to do better. So that's mm. what we're trying to do. It feels like cat food has been the same forever. Smelly, boring, made of mystery ingredients. That's why you've got to try Smalls. Smalls cat food is protein-packed recipes made with preservative-free ingredients you'd find in your own fridge. And it's delivered right to your door. Make the switch from kibble and give your cat a meal they'll love. We actually sent some Smalls to my friend in Brooklyn who is fostering kittens, and they took to it right away. It is delicious. It is nutritious. It is easy to serve. Yum, yum, yum. Eat it up. Your cute kitty is descended from ferocious desert cats who hunted live prey. Even if your cat prefers to nap all day, they still need fresh, protein-packed meals for a balanced and healthy diet. Other brands fill their food with mysterious meat byproducts, artificial flavoring, and preservatives with names I don't even want to try to pronounce. After switching it up to Smalls, 90% of cat owners reported overall health improvements. That's major. The team at Smalls is so confident your cat will love their product that you can try it risk-free. That means they'll completely refund you if your picky cat won't eat their food. Now is the time to make the switch to Smalls. Head to smalls.com slash DST and use promo code DST at checkout for 50% off your first order, plus free shipping. That's the best offer you'll find. But you have to use my code DST for 50% off your first order. One last time, that's promo code DST for 50% off your first order, plus free shipping. This episode is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick but can't always find the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you, Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for this season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription clothing rental service. For just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles each month. Access to thousands of styles from more than 400 brands. There are no fees, late fees, damage fees, or fees to pause or cancel. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X as well as petite and maternity. And you always have the option to buy what you love. I love Newly. I've rented so many cute things from there, and I've even made a few purchases from there. And they're always spot on. They have so many brands that I honestly could never afford in real life. So it's great to be able to rent them. Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles. But right now, you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code DST20. Just go to Newly, that's N U U L Y dot com, and enter the code DST20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y dot com, newly with two U's, with code DST20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. I wanted to ask you guys about restrictions on egg freezing, because that's kind of how this whole topic came up. Um, Yeah, totally. You know, whether it be BMI or mental illness, how do you determine 
what makes somebody unqualified for for egg donation? So the goal of co-fertility is to to make a match in which an intended parent couple is going to have a hopefully successful outcome. So we're trying to choose a donor candidate that is is a good you know qualifier for going through this process and it's going to be safe and hopefully yield a good result. So, um, you know, we have definitely taken a thoughtful approach around this with as many opinions as possible. And we certainly follow the guidelines of the American Society of Reproductive Medicine or ASRM. Um, There are certain other organizations like the FDA that also have restrictions. So we've tried to encompass all of that to come up with what we feel like is fair and just for our community. And we, again, our goal is really to be as inclusive as possible. Um, Mm -hmm. And certainly, you know, our our whole mission is access to care. So we really want to be able to provide this service to um, as many people who are interested as possible. And as Lauren mentioned earlier on, there are, we have two programs So the key program for anyone who would disqualify for the, the split program can still freeze their eggs under that program. So we really want to be inclusive. But going back to your specific question, you know, age, because we know that's linked to egg quality, is certainly a qualifier and, and there are different age cutoffs depending on the agency you work with. Um, we knew that. You medical- don't want a geriatric egg <laughs> from <laughs> someone in her 40s. I love that that's geriatric. Well, over 35 is technically geriatric, which is just a horrendous term. I, I'm protesting to end Kill that. me. Get me <laughs> yeah. a walker. I'm almost there. <laughs> the worst word. It's the worst word. It really is um, not developed by women, clearly. But but uh, yeah, in terms of the other qualifiers, you know, age is really important. Medical history. Um, we do genetic screening to see if they are a carrier for any genetic traits. We look at family history. If there's a strong family history of cancer or, you know, something else that we know is inherited, we certainly would counsel that woman that she may not be a good candidate for that, but maybe a great candidate for the KEEP program. In fact, a lot of patients that I see, in fact, one of the most common um, patient I see is women with uh, the BRCA mutation. They have um, a susceptibility to breast cancer, but that's a yeah. gene that we can actually screen for in embryos. So one of the indications for IDF is actually genetic testing of embryos. And so you can actually help that patient or a couple decrease the transmission of that gene to their children. So again, they may not qualify oh. for the split program, but they might be a great candidate and a perfect case for the KEEP program. Um, you know, yes, BMI, and I'm really, really glad that you um, were bringing up this topic again today because it is a really important one. And I just want to say up front that, you know, I personally believe that BMI is not a great metric for health. We just know that. We know that it's not ethnic uh, specific. We know that there's a lot of ambiguity around BMI when it comes to people who may have more muscle, you know, percentage, Mm -hmm. body percentage. So really, it's not a great metric. But unfortunately, that's what we have to use because a lot of the studies were based off of BMI stratification, looking at risks of certain things. So in terms of egg freezing and how that all relates, the reason that you know we use cutoffs is because there's there are some studies that indicate that higher BMI is associated with impaired fertility and lower IVF outcomes. This oh. goes back to directly egg quality. We know that women with a higher BMI have a lower number of eggs retrieved at their procedure. We know that they have a lower number of mature eggs and embryos that develop. And and so that's certainly one of the concerns that we have. Um, The other things that come up sometimes with higher BMI patients are that the actual procedure itself can be more complex and can introduce higher risk complications if their ovaries, for example, are not accessible easily during an egg retrieval procedure. Remember, this is, you know, an elective procedure. We want to weigh the risks and benefits well for every patient so that they can make an informed decision whether they feel like it's, you know, a good choice for them. So, you know, in terms of complexity of the procedure, that can add um, to it with a higher BMI. And then some clinics have cutoffs because their anesthesiologists may not feel comfortable administering the type of anesthesia for a higher BMI patient because there may be more anesthetic risk. So those are some reasons why there may be cutoffs. We at Co-Fertility have really tried to you know, take a step back and be really thoughtful about this and again, try to be as inclusive as possible. So our major restrictions are because we're partnering directly with clinics, we know that clinics are going to have their cutoffs, but we also partner with clinics who may not have cutoffs. So if a patient may not qualify for the SLIP program, we're going to send them right to someplace that's going to take care of them. Um, They don't have BMI cutoffs and they can safely take care of them with the right resources in place. 
Got mm-hmm. it. Have you ever had a patient that um, their BMI was too high? And also, I'd love to know what that number is, if it's above 30, if it's above 25 or whatever it might be. But have you ever had somebody um, who didn't qualify because of their BMI and then they just said, OK, well, I'll go lose weight and come back and then they end up doing it? Yeah. Does it matter if it's like is because I think the person who wrote us was like all they took was the BMI and then they said no. And I was like, and like no history, like nothing else like your BMI can change over your lifetime. Mm-hmm. So like, is there a history taken as well? As far as I know, you know, we, we look at BMI, we, we get, you know, a lot of information about their medical history as well. So if they have any, okay. t- take any medications or if they have any other, you know, conditions that have been diagnosed by a medical provider. So yeah, we are trying to look at it holistically, but we just know that because we're partnering with clinics and clinics might have their own criteria, we're limited in terms of what we can do. But that being said, I think we, try our very best to partner with clinics. For example, my own clinic is one in which we are inclusive to women of all BMI categories. And so I actually this morning saw a patient who was rejected by another clinic and, and they know that my clinic is is inclusive. And that patient came to see me this morning. It was a very emotional visit because she felt shamed and she didn't feel like she got the best care. But I really made her feel like, hey, we can take care of you here. You know, we have the resources in place. I have the experience. I'm going to be transparent with you about, you know, what you're chances are, what your risks are, but let's work together and make this happen. So I think, um, you know, certainly we, we, we do understand it, it, it. BMI can change over time. And we encourage women to try to focus on healthy lifestyle habits, like, you know, focusing on nutrition and diet and exercise. But the reality is that it's really hard to lose weight too. So I think yeah. I really talk to women about, you know, you may not see a number change on the scale, but if you feel healthier and you're taking the right steps towards being healthier, that's what matters more than anything else. So again, I think all of us really try to really um, help serve this patient population and not be discriminatory about it. I think some practices are just limited in terms of their resources because of whatever their anesthesiologist says or, you know, whatever their personal experiences have been. But, you know, again, at Co-Fertility, we do try to find the right clinic for that patient if, if they're not accepted somewhere. And Emily asked about the specific number too. Is there... Yeah. So co-fertility um, for our split program, so again, that's different than the KEEP program, mm-hmm. um, is between 18 and 29. I think lower than 18 also poses different challenges as well. Um, for sure. You know, other egg donation programs have even lower cutoffs than we do. And so we really try to, to be as inclusive as we can. But again, like Mira said, it feels, unfortunately, it's like so up to the clinic that does the cycle. Like we are the sort of matching platform between the two, right? So we're not necessarily the ones, we don't give care, right? And so it's not up to co-fertility to say, this is like what we can accept because it's really the clinic, unfortunately, that makes that decision. So my hope is that more clinics, and we have this conversation with clinics all the time. And and you spoke in your last podcast about how we just need to keep having this conversation because it really is the way it will change. Um, I wish all clinics were looking at it the same way Dr. Mira and her clinic is looking at it, right? And and we're thinking about it from like an equipment and resources and things like that sort of perspective to be more inclusive. Well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on that note, Dr. Mira, I'm curious if based on what you've seen, do women um, or people with ovaries who, who are at a higher weight, do they experience more difficulties with the process based on what you've seen? They do. They, they can. Um, for example, they might need a higher dose of medications. They might have more side effects. Their procedure could be more complicated. And um, and one of the more memorable patients that I took care of over the last year, um, she encountered several miscarriages. We know that that is uh, an increased risk for women who have a higher BMI. And so I think, um, you know, she ended up having a baby, of course, at the end of her journey. And we kept at it, kept trying. And such a wonderful journey for me too to just watch her go through that and support her along the way. But yes, I mean, there are real risks that you have to talk about. But I think um, if you find the right clinic and provider is going to stick with you and support you. And, um, you know, there are many women who are successful with their IVF journeys, probably more more often than, than not. So mm-hmm. they oh, should be offered so nice to hear. like any other patient. And what does that process look like? Because when you think about sperm donation, it's like they give you a magazine, a cup, they put you in a room and <laughs> yeah. boom, you're done. Um, yeah. With egg retrieval, it feels 
a little different. It's a little yeah. bit different. Um, so yeah, so you know, it, it starts by just kind of assessing the ovarian reserve. So this is um, a quantitative way to look at how many eggs a woman has. And there's two ways we can do this. We can look at a blood test called anti-malarian hormone. This is a hormone that's released by the eggs. And then we can actually visually look at the ovaries and actually count up follicles. And usually those two things correlate really well. And that helps us a lot with predicting how women are going to respond, how many eggs they're going to get, etc. So um, that's really the first thing that we look at. In terms of starting the process, essentially what we're trying to do is make reproduction more efficient. I often describe fertility and reproduction as being very wasteful and inefficient because we barely use a fraction of 1% of our eggs in our lifetime. Imagine that every month really? we're using hundreds to thousands of eggs and only one egg is actually getting a chance. So the most number of eggs that someone has with ovaries has is actually when we were a fetus in our mother's uterus. Okay. Mm -hmm. Even by the time birth has happened, we've lost half of our eggs. Even before puberty, before we've even had a menstrual cycle, we've lost another 50% of our eggs. How? I should have been charging for these. (laughs) (laughs) I know this is why it's so unfair. And you know, it's, there's no way to control this process or slow it down. There are a few things that can accelerate it. Like we know smoking can accelerate the loss of eggs, but it is reversible. So women who stop smoking can actually halt that process. So that's, that's Mm. good and hopefully motivational to to hear for women. But, um, you know, as we go through, and even if you're on birth control, even if you're pregnant, you're still losing eggs because this process happens continuously. But wait, when you, when you don't have your period yet, yeah. How are you losing eggs? There's just this process called oocyte atresia, which is this process where cells basically undergo cell death. And because uh, unlike male biology, where the sperm has a stem cell that can kind of reproduce and reproduce, we don't have the ability to create more eggs than what we're born with. So that's it. We have a finite number. And that number mm-hmm. will go down over time at different rates, depending on, you know, your health. And, you know, you can, you can get a snapshot into how many eggs you have left by doing these tests like AMH and, you know, follicle counts. But what we can never predict, and I'm always, you know, very honest with women is I can't predict what your egg quality and egg quantity is going to look like next year, five years from now. So let's assume the worst right now and assume that things are going to decline quickly. Let's seize this opportunity to freeze your eggs now so that you don't have to worry about you know, going through rounds and rounds of IVF and maybe ultimately making the hard decision, you know, let's be honest, choosing to use an egg donor is a very difficult one. And sometimes my patients have taken years to be just emotionally ready for that. So essentially these young women who are going to freeze their eggs through, you know, for example, our program can be their own egg donors in the future and use their younger eggs. But, you know, back to your original question, sorry, I'm digressing because I think all these things are really important and helpful for, yeah, yeah. for your audience to hear. Um, so we can assess ovarian reserve. And once, you know, we, we look at the follicle count on ultrasound, we can tell women, all right, based off of the number of follicles, this is roughly what we're predicting to see, but it's not until we start the process that we're going to actually see the results pan out. So the stimulation begins by having a woman administer and self-administer injectable hormones. The hormone that's the primary hormone of egg freezing ovarian stimulation is follicle stimulating hormone or FSH. This is a hormone that your brain, your pituitary gland in your brain secretes in really small quantities. And it only allows one egg out of that whole group. Remember, you might produce 10 or 15 every month, but only one egg is going to get selected to grow. It's kind of the chosen one, right? And then the other eggs, they don't have a chance. They they didn't get enough of that hormone to stimulate. And so in a two to four week span, those eggs are gone and the cycle starts all over again. And your body doesn't know which egg to choose. It's not like it knows this egg is healthy, this one's not. It's a random selection. So mm-hmm. at age 35, when half or more of your eggs are already genetically abnormal, because that happens as we age, there's more just chromosomal abnormalities as a woman ages. And that's why we face more infertility, have more miscarriages, Down syndrome is more common. That all goes back to the egg and the genetics of the egg. So when it comes to the process itself, um, you know, we're using that follicle stimulating hormone to recruit all of those eggs. Remember, they were going to be gone anyway. So women are sometimes like, oh my gosh, is my fertility going to go down after you take out all these eggs? And I'm like, no, these are eggs that would have been gone anyway. We're just rescuing them. We're just giving them a second chance. And so your fertility is unchanged 
by this whole process. And so by okay. recruiting all of these eggs, we can get an entire cohort of however many eggs a woman has, 5, 10, 15, 20, et cetera, and freeze them all together. Again, these would have been lost anyway. And so the process takes about two weeks. So it's relatively short. During that time, you, the hormone that you're administering is that follicle-stimulating hormone. We watch the follicles grow and we use transvaginal ultrasounds to monitor this. And when the follicles reach a certain size, you're ready for something called a trigger injection where the eggs are ready to be retrieved. And those initial hormones, that you do them at home or is it the doctors doing it? And it's like, all- are you? self-administered. So they're doing it Stabbing your butt or your thigh or your arm? <laughs> Usually your abdomen, kind of like your lower abdomen. Okay. Yes. Okay. And the needles are really, really small. They're like the size of your pinky in terms of the length. And they just skim the surface of your skin. They're called subcutaneous because they're underneath the layer of the skin. Mm-hmm. So they're not like big old needles that go into the muscle. And the pens are You probably are didn't designed- love the word stab. <laughs> <laughs> I hear it all the time though. I mean, that's kind yeah. of what it is, right? Um, A little prick in the tummy. <laughs> But, you know, I've had patients with like the the most severe needle phobias just breeze through Mm -hmm. this process. Really, it's amazing. The first time they do it, they're overwhelmed, they're terrified, but they go through it and it's so quick that it's done before they know it. And it's easier because it's something that's important to them. Like if something's really, really important to you, you'll probably be more likely to do it. Definitely. And this is where friends or partners can step in to help. You know, I've had people who said that somebody came over to help them with their medication. So, you know, it's, it's helpful. I, I think sometimes women feel really isolated in this process, which is another thing co-fertility really focuses on is building a community for women who are freezing their eggs because it's a really lonely process and it's really triggering for women to be thinking about their future and their fertility, especially if they're single and alone. So um, I often find women coming into my office in tears because they're like, I didn't realize how overwhelming this was going to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I could imagine. Yeah. So Warmer weather is finally back. After so many cold months, it's nice to get outside and soak up the sun. But the springtime always brings those unwanted guests, pollen and seasonal allergies. April showers bring spring flowers and sniffly noses and stuffed up sinuses. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. I suffer from seasonal allergies. I just had them hit the other day. I couldn't breathe through my nose at all. And I popped a Claritin and it was like night and day. I'm a huge fan of Claritin. I use it on the regular and it always helps when we're making that transition from winter to spring, which is when my allergies flare up. Mainly it's my sinuses that get so clogged and the Claritin just clears it right up. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients and just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy throat and nose, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live your life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. So with the FSH stage, yes. um, do you need to be ovulating to administer that? So we're actually kind of preventing ovulation in this whole process. In fact, you oh. take a medication to prevent that because, again, you don't want that egg to escape out of the follicle. You want to get that egg out of the follicle through the procedure of the egg retrieval. So you're actually taking a medication to prevent the body from doing that because it's going to have a tendency to want to get those eggs out. Your estrogen levels are going up and up and up and your body doesn't know what's going on. It's going to want to do that. So there's actually another injectable medication that you use to prevent ovulation. So you're not ovulating through a cycle. 
You're not okay. On, be okay. honest with us. Yes. How many different shots are, are we doing in this process? <laughs> yeah, it, it adds up. I mean, some protocols are one or two a day. Other protocols are like four to five a day. It, it, it can be a lot. It definitely can be a lot. There's usually like a morning set and an evening set of medications. Okay. Okay. I did my first retrieval last week. And Ooh, congratulations. Thank you. And uh, there was something about it that like, Obviously, like the pricking is not fun, but there was something about like organizing it and doing some of the mixing and like preparing it that made me feel like I'm doing something to further myself toward this goal. Self-care ritual vibes. I don't know. I like I weirdly enjoyed it. You know what? That's crazy. But that also it does make sense. And (laughs) because... It's um, it's something that you can control. Like, I think the actual reason why a lot of people have these needle phobias, and I am in that group, by the way, yeah, um, is because you have experiences at the doctor where you don't have any control, or like totally. they can't find, you know, if it's a blood test, they can't, can't find, find your vein. vein. That happens the worst. all the time. And yeah. um, and so if you're doing it yourself, I could imagine that it, you feel more in control, totally. so you're just at ease. Yes. Also, some people like getting like a tattoo or getting shots, you know, like, but then this is like with your future in mind. So even more fun. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to collecting, like you you do these two weeks of shots, right? And then again, it's not like there's just a cup to wait for your egg to fall out. (laughs) What what is the actual retrieval like? If only you could ejaculate eggs. You lay it like a chicken all the time. Bloop. Yeah. Well, we're working on, and this is in the pipeline, maybe not in our generation, but in like 20 years, we're hoping that we can like take a biopsy of the skin and take like a fibroblast and reprogram it to a stem cell and give it all the signals to turn into an egg. So Ooh, stay tuned for some really cool amazing. science because there's some, there's some neat stuff in the pipeline. Uh, but, but yeah, so we don't collect in a, a, you know, a collection cup, but we, we collect the eggs in a test tube and it's done through a transvaginal ultrasound approach. Very okay. safe. Okay. Extremely safe. It takes about five to 10 minutes to actually perform the egg retrieval. You're under anesthesia. So you're totally comfortable. And the ovary is like right next to the vaginal wall. So under ultrasound guidance, we'll essentially take a very small needle and puncture through just a you know few millimeters of thickness of the vaginal wall, go directly into the ovary, section, 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 each follicle, try to get an egg from every single follicle, do that on the other side. And that's it. Uh, patients wake up from their anesthesia. They feel maybe a little crampy, a little bit bloated uh, for a couple of days, but the recovery can actually be pretty quick and smooth as well. Um, most I tell patients that they can go back to work the next day. If they're not going to be on their feet a ton, it's probably fine. Um, most people are, are back at it you know, pretty soon. And the ovary wall just heals right up? It just heals. It's really amazing. That's insane. There's no eggs just heals. floating around. In <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and within two weeks, you get a period. And then your body's back to normal again. It kind of resets. Wow. And what is the cost of actually storing eggs? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it depends on how, who you do it with, right? Sure, so, sure. Um, I, and you guys are both in New York, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, like, if you wanted to do an egg retrieval, including medication in New York City, you're likely looking at around $15,000, maybe more, not including storage. Storage mm-hmm. standard there is like between $500 and $1,000 per year. What about Manhattan mini storage? <laughs> I was literally just thinking that, like to store my couch, it's more expensive. <laughs> storage in New York is expensive. <laughs> but if you do it with our Keep program, you can do... The entire process, so that's including medication, the retrieval, and five years of storage, you can do the whole thing for $11,000. If you wanted to do 10 years of storage, which I think a lot of people want that freedom to not have to think about it, Mm -hmm. it's $12,000. And that's because we've been able to go in and, and negotiate on behalf of multiple people, right? It's different if you're like one person going in versus a group. Um... And so it really just depends on how you do it. Okay. Uh, and then again, if you were to do the split program, the 10 years of storage is entirely free. Okay. Got it. And are you guys also in the business of embryo freezing? Like if a couple was doing it together and yes. wanted to freeze embryos? Yeah. We have a lot of 
members who ask about this. And I'm sure Mira, you have thoughts on it. And I think this is one of those things, we have some resources on our website about it too, right? It's like, if you feel ready with the person that you're with, like absolutely embryos should be part of how you're thinking about this. Are they more viable? I feel like every Bravo reality show has said (laughs) embryos are more viable than eggs. I'll interject for a moment and Lauren, you can finish, but it used to be, it used to be the case that there was a big difference and the survival of a frozen embryo and a frozen egg that has changed dramatically in the last decade where now we Mm. can say it's pretty comparable. There's a slight edge towards embryo freezing, but like you said, Lauren, like the optionality that you retain by freezing eggs, even if you're in a committed relationship, like I have married couples who I'm like, maybe you still want to consider freezing your eggs. Yeah. You don't know him. (laughs) You don't know what he'll do. I have married friends who've chosen to freeze eggs and not embryos. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, it really, you know, the worst is hearing stories about people who are having like you know, legal battles over embryos. Yeah, there was a story in Sofia Vergara. Yeah, Sofia Vergara and her husband. Also, imagine if Tom Sandoval had sullied Ariana's eggs. Yes. I I mean, terrible. (laughs) Remy, that thought will keep me up at night. Um, Oh my gosh. I'm so happy it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But for our members who, like, say you're one of our split members and you decide to go through this process and you're like, no, I am like madly in love with my partner. We know that we want to have kids together. Um, we'll absolutely have that conversation. The cost of fertilizing the eggs to create embryos is something that would be on the split member, just because that's like outside of what the program usually okay. covers. Got it. Um, but we're happy to like walk you through all of that and figure out what the right answer is for you. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, why is it that back in the day, they were far more viable, uh, embryos that is, and now Misogyny? they're not? Well, I mean, an egg is one cell. Okay. It's actually very difficult to freeze and thought you have to actually dehydrate it and then freeze it quickly. What happened before is we used a technique called slow freeze and it was a slow process that would crystallize the, the fluids in the egg. And then when you thought it, like half of them would die. Now we use something called vitrification this is like a flash freeze process. You just dunk into liquid nitrogen and it just dehydrates it rapidly. Just no like crystals. sushi. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and, you know, the, the survival rate is upward of 90 to 95%. So um, it, it's a lot better. Um, freezing an, embry- an embryo can be, you know, eight cells. It can be a hundred cells, depending on the stage at which you freeze it. But it's just more robust because it's a multicellular structure. Mm. I just wanted to add one reason to freeze your freeze embryos over eggs. If you have, you know, a situation which you can choose the major advantage of freezing embryos in my, my mind is that you learn more about the potential of that egg upfront. When you freeze an egg, you have no idea if it's going to fertilize, if it's going to make it to a viable embryo. You just don't know. I mean, we can give you these numbers and capabilities, but it's not until we actually do it that we're going to know. And, with embryos, we can go to the extent of genetically testing them. And then it's still not a guarantee, but we can say, all right, out of your 20 eggs, we have two embryos and one of them is genetically normal. So maybe you want to do another cycle because that may not be enough to fulfill your family planning goals. And so that information up front might lead women, couples to do additional cycles if they learn that they didn't get what they hoped for. That's actually one of the split members I talked with last week who had finished her cycle already and had donated half of the eggs um, because the donated half were fertilized right away for the intended parents and PGTA tested like she knew she had great quality eggs that she had put Ah. away. So it was like more information than you would otherwise have if you just did egg freezing. Oh, right. that's wow. So that's another advantage to doing mm-hmm. a freeze and share program. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. You know, we do have listener questions to get to, but I just wanted to touch cool. on on one thing that you mentioned because you talked about after 35, there are uh, higher risks of genetic disorders or abnormalities. Um, and I have heard, you know, there's a higher chance of having a child with Down syndrome if you're older. But what is the actual 
chance because it is fairly low to begin with. So mm-hmm. if we're talking mm-hmm. like it doubles the risk, is it 0.5% to 1%? You're right. Or- You're right. You're right. I think it's important to, when you, when you talk about risk, talk about relative risk and absolute risk. A relative risk can count, sound scary if you're talking about 10 times the risk, but if it's 10 times a 0.1 and it's 1%, it's still pretty low. We're still talking about numbers that are in the low, low, low single digits when it comes mm-hmm. to genetic abnormalities. So it is very low. It's just relatively higher and it definitely goes up over 40. Um, the, the really nice thing about, I, I mean, PGT, Lauren referred to that. It's a term that stands for pre-implantation genetic testing, where you can biopsy an embryo and actually look at all the chromosomes inside of it. And even to the extent you can look at like a single gene disorder, like I mentioned BRCA, the breast cancer gene, cystic fibrosis is another one that comes up, you know, not infrequently. We can test yeah. for that in the embryo. So pretty, pretty amazing. It's not a perfect science yet. And so I always kind of go back to like nature actually doing a pretty good job of PGT2. And so when, let's say you transferred an embryo and you didn't know if it was normal or not, your body would know. And if that embryo was abnormal, it probably wouldn't let it implant in the first place. Mm. Or, you know, worst case scenario might lead to an early onset miscarriage. So I think that nature does a lot of selection too for us. And so even like pre-implantation and early first trimester, a lot of that screening is done by nature. And so most live births are chromosomally normal because that that process is sort of filtered out from the very beginning of the reproductive process. And there are natural births that are, you know, pe- people have Down syndrome and have these genes and they do have fine lives too. So it's like, yeah, I, I wouldn't let those things be um, a reason why somebody wouldn't want to freeze their eggs. Absolutely. I think that's a really important point too. And we, I, it comes back to autonomy for the patient. And, you know, we, we go through PGT reports sometimes and a patient's like, well, I would be comfortable transferring an abnormal embryo. And so we, yeah. we know it's about counseling and education and having the right resources in place, but we absolutely support, you know, women who decide to continue pregnancy, even when they find out that their first trimester screening might be positive for Down syndrome. I mean, absolutely. There's children and, you know, with beautiful, beautiful lives and families that have been changed positively uh, because of it. So we, we definitely support that. And with the right counseling, those patients can continue those pregnancies. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's get into our listener questions. Yeah. This listener asked, how common is it for a couple to struggle with conceiving naturally? So, you know, the WHO published some data recently and they said one in six. We used to say one in eight, Mm. but it's much more common now. And I think that that might even be an underestimate because it's hard to collect that kind of data. So it could be even more frequent than that. And it's certainly higher in certain types of patient populations as well. Especially, yeah. I don't think people were talking about it with such comfort um, oh, until yeah. like the last totally. few decades. I think it was like something yeah. very um, kept close to the chest and like a little shame embarrassed about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the thing that has surprised me the most in the last couple years of, of getting deep in this space is actually secondary infertility. And I wish more people knew about it. So it's this idea that? that you have no trouble conceiving and carrying your first child. Mm. And you are like happy in your parental bliss, right? You like do a year of postpartum and then you start thinking about when is it going to feel right in our lives to have our second child. And you start trying and either it gets it's harder to conceive than it was the first time or it's harder to stay pregnant than it was the first time and you end up having miscarriages. And I find that a lot of the intended parents who come to us are not people who, I mean, they are, they're all walks of life, but I think a lot of them ha- are experiencing secondary infertility where they had this like, I don't know if you'd call it like a false sense of security, but like this idea that like, oh, we had no problem the first time, the second will be just as easy. Mm-hmm. And it's just not the case. And I think a big part of that, and I'm sure 
um, Dr. Mira would agree is that, you know, they're getting older, right? Like they just assume because they had no problem, that'll be the case. But over time, your quality decreases, your quantity decreases, and that's what makes it more difficult. Um, Or even if you're someone who wants that large family we talked about, right? It's like, okay, you've had two kids and then you have another year of postpartum and then you decide and it's just increasingly difficult. And I just don't know that enough people like get that when they're thinking about family planning. They're just so focused on when do they want to have their first that they're not thinking about beyond that one. Right, right. Because if, if you, you freeze started- them and then implant them, like, aren't they all like twins? Kind of not twins, but like they're all they like they're all. <laughs> oh my like god, the same I never idea. thought about it yeah. like that. <laughs> they're from the same sibling cohort. Yeah, they're yes. they're basically they're litter mates. <laughs> they're litter mates. <laughs> exactly. There was wow. um, a baby born recently from an embryo that had been frozen for twenty five years, and yes. um, from the original cohort, there was a baby that was born who was twenty five years old, but they were from the same batch. And oh wow, how cool is that? Yeah. Wait, that's so funny because there's this whole internet trend right now uh, going around. Like people are making videos. I was born in the wrong generation. I feel like if you were frozen for 25 wow. years, yeah. you were born in the wrong generation. I love that. And like, can I yeah. say one more thing? Which is, I, I know I said one in six, but it's higher in some populations. In fact, um, women in medicine, and I think this might apply to you know a lot of women who go to graduate school or have high stress careers uh, at least women in medicine since been studied that we are at much higher risk for infertility as much as one in four and twice as likely oh, wow. to go through a miscarriage so one of my like personal missions is to like go out and educate women who are in grad school medical school whatever school that hey you're more at risk more than yeah. to freeze your eggs because there's a good chance you're going to need to use them later on and we talked about bmi being a restriction this is something that i've spoken about because both of my parents are like freeze your eggs freeze your eggs and i'm like i am a highly depressed person like why would i want to freeze a sad baby <laughs> are there <laughs> are there mental illness restrictions or is it the same thing that it's like hey like if you're willing to do the work with that kid, it's mm-hmm. fine. Definitely just in terms of freezing your eggs, there are no restrictions whatsoever. It gets okay. a little bit more complex with donating eggs. Donating, um, yeah. The American Society of Reproductive Medicine, again, they have some guidelines that, and again, there's a little bit of gray there, but you know, they basically say if you're taking medications or if it severely uh, affects your quality of life, that could be a, a reason to disqualify for donation. But um, definitely these women are encouraged to freeze their eggs. There's no reason not to. Yeah. I have yeah. two friends who need an egg at some point and I was like, I'll do it. And they were like, mm-hmm. we don't want yours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So this person asks, how do I decide if I should freeze my eggs? It's so expensive, but I'm getting quote old and still undecided. Okay. Well, if they're not a candidate for co-fertility, <laughs> I would, you know, explore that option first, but I, I encourage like anyone to just see someone like me to just have that conversation because you know you can read stuff on the internet you can talk to your friends but it's not until you have that one-on-one like really vulnerable conversation with somebody who's going to just give you all the information talk about success rates talk about the pros and the cons that you're really going to come away with being able to make an informed decision so i really think it's easy enough to make a consultation with a fertility clinic oftentimes it can get covered by insurance to do that so the testing can get covered but it really comes down to just having that conversation and having a real open, honest conversation about yeah. what are the chances that it's going to work. And mm-hmm. just like regardless of your age, we can help connect you with some of the best doctors. So like don't think yeah. that if you're over a certain age, we can't. Um, but I also am really a huge proponent of people having like the not just a consult, but like having some blood work done and having an ultrasound just to like know what you're current fertility status looks like, right? Like the goal is to just not be surprised someday, right? I think it's like just better to know. Um, I think a lot of people, even we talk about this on our team all the time, right? This idea of like burying your head in the sand about your fertility would be easier to just like not know what your AMH is, not know what your follicle count looks like because the alternative sounds worse. But information really is what can like empower you to make a decision, whether it's now or months from now or years from now. 
So yeah, somebody had asked, why do I have to try and fail to get pregnant for a year (laughs) for a fertility doctor to talk to me? Yeah. Is that Um, true? I've never heard of that. I think it comes back to like kind of what insurance will and will not cover. Um, Unfortunately, I I don't think you can see a fertility specialist too soon. Um, Why wait a year? I mean, if there's like a clear sperm factor, then you just wasted a whole year. Um, Or if you have endometriosis, which is a really common condition. I mean, there's so many things out there. So I definitely say like if you're primary care doctor, they may have the best intent in mind for you, but if you're feeling like the sense of urgency, we will never turn you away. We will see anyone, whether you've been trying for zero months to five years or more, it doesn't matter. We just think that that information, like Lauren said, is empowering to help make educated choices. Again, family planning goals, that's short-term and long-term. If you want to have multiple kids, we're thinking ahead. We're thinking, I want to help my patient get pregnant, but I also want to help them expand their family in three or right. four or five years. So it's that big picture that we're seeing. Right. Um, yeah. Do you have to come off of any medications during the egg freezing process? Ooh. It depends. Um, certainly, there are a lot more restrictions uh, around medications when you're actually trying to get pregnant. So there's certain medications you have to come off of. Um, but when you're going through egg freezing, like if you're taking an antidepressant, like I definitely encourage my patients to stay on that medication. I want them to be taking care of their well-being. And I do counsel those women that it, you know, because the hormones can do a number to moods that you are more in touch with your, you know, your therapist or whatever resource you use for support. Um, And there are a lot of protocols we use nowadays that can minimize a lot of the estrogen effects on mood as well. But, you know, there, there are like obvious things like, you know, for a trans patient, if they were taking testosterone, they would need to come off of testosterone for a reason. But by and large, like you can continue most medications unless it has a, a direct impact on the process and the hormones and things like that. Okay. Also, a listener asked, is it true that a PPO insurance usually covers the medicine but not the procedure for egg freezing? In my experience, it really depends. So like there truly is like not a one size fits all coverage for any of this, right? Like even you could find the same insurance provider, their coverage varies based on the employer, right? So like you really only know until you explore it with your own insurance provider for your own plan, like, don't try to find a blanket answer. Everything is very individual to like your in, like subscriber program. I, I practice in the Bay Area where we're very lucky to have a lot of employer-based uh, fertility benefits. Yeah. Um, you might have heard of um, Progeny and Carrot. Those are company. Those are third-party fertility benefits that contract with on an employer level to provide all their employees with the benefits. So I'm very lucky to have patients that get a lot of coverage for it. But I, um, you know, I tell my patients all the time. You know, there are some companies where you may have to work part-time, but you get all the full benefits. You know, like I, I think I don't know if they still have this program, but at Starbucks, you could be a part-time university and get a full package for fertility benefits. And so I've had no patients. And so yeah. I would explore with your HR department, look at you know these these fertility benefits and see you know whether that might be an option. The clinic can also be really helpful in helping to decipher it. Like I ended up being very surprised by what was covered on my plan. I thought it was going to be less, and it ended up more was covered. Um, but again, like, don't feel like not having cup coverage is like the end of your road. There's like other ways to make this happen. And that's what mm-hmm. we can And then I think our last question was, can lighter, shorter periods be a sign of infertility? Great question. I mean, this is why I like absolutely love seeing patients for their new consultation, because it's just, we just open up everything about their reproductive health, which includes their GYN history, abnormal cycles. We might make a new diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome or premature onset menopause. Um, I get to talk about like the entire spectrum with women and they're just so, you know, just in awe their bodies in this process. But, you know, it, it could be, but it could, I think we typically, you know, my job is not just fertility. I'm, I'm a trained OBGYN too. So I'm looking at all the mm-hmm. reproductive hormones. I might diagnose a low thyroid or a high prolactin, which is another hormone that could interfere with reproduction. And sometimes I've diagnosed some pretty bizarre things that have led down a completely different pathway for a patient to take care of her health in another aspect. So it could, but I think your menstrual cycle is what we call our vital sign for a fertility specialist. We look at, we're going to ask you every detail. How many days do you bleed? What's your flow like? You know, you do have some mid-cycle spotting, you know, what's the length of your luteal phase? And we go through it in so much detail because every 
detail matters to me and it could link back to fertility and hormones and things like that. So again, we're looking at the big picture and, and sometimes get to pick up some new things and educate a patient about other things that might help her with longevity and long-term health. I bet you uncover things all the time because like PCOS is one of those things where if you don't get Mm -hmm. it checked out, you just feel like something is wrong. You could chalk it up to, well, periods suck. Like being a woman sucks and just kind of not really acknowledge that pain that you're in. I'm thinking about period differences though for myself because I used to have a very, you know, consistent, almost longer, uh, you know, more blood colored period. And now they're lighter, shorter browner. And I'm like, oh, was that the IUD or is it a sign of aging and infertility? It's an interesting thing to think about. Definitely. I I have, I mean, IUDs are like an amazing form of contraception. Um, I have seen it in a subset of women that it has changed their menstrual cycles even after their IUD was removed. And they described exactly what you just said, lighter periods. And most of the time it doesn't affect their fertility. Um, There have been some rare cases that it that or might have affected it, uh, the way that the way that their uterine lining develops, etc. But all in all, I still support women getting IUDs because I think it's one of the best forms of contraception. I love it so much; it's my favorite sex toy. <laughs> <laughs> you, I call it jewelry for your uterus. Yes, oh, that's cute. <laughs> Ooh, get me a blanket. You guys, thank you so much for coming on today. You were absolutely fabulous, and you answered yeah. so many questions. Before we let you go, I, I wrote a song for this episode. And it goes something like this. I might, I might freeze my eggs. It's my dad's idea. (laughs) Emily is next. How'd we get here? Oh my God. (laughs) That was a surprise to me. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad she (laughs) didn't tell me about that. That was everything. (laughs) And your dad's right. He's the best. <laughs> you know? <sighs> Sometimes dads are right. He says these these sad babies are um they're worth saving. They're worth it, yeah. I agree. Um, but you guys, thank you again. I think this episode's gonna help a lot of people. And um, if you guys have any other questions, be sure to send your questions to DST at betches.com to get them answered. Yes. Follow us at Diet Starts Tomorrow on Instagram. If you like this episode, please write us a review. And don't forget to check out our DST merch on shop.betches.com. Rate, review, and subscribe. And of course, follow me at Lubination. Follow me at Remy Casimir. Um, where can they follow you guys if you want to be followed? Yeah, for sure. I'm at Lauren Mackler, but you can find Cofertility at Freeze by Co. We have a ton of content and resources there. And Dr. Mira, what about you? Yes, I um, I love posting content on my personal handle, which is at Dr. Dr. Uh, underscore Mira Shah, M-E-E-R-A-S-H-A-H. And I post everything about talking about PCOS to, you know, LGBTQ related fertility issues. So I, I love it as a platform to teach and educate and connect with other people. Amazing. Thank you guys again. And listeners, remember, we're always with you through thick and thin. Diet Starts Tomorrow is produced by Sean Kilby, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Aliza Zinn. Editing by Sean Kilby. Social media by Aliza Zinn. Guest booking by Ali Friedlander. Be sure to follow Diet Starts Tomorrow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And send us your emails to dst at betches.com or your voicemails to 212-287-5650. Betches.